Well, it's Mark's Gospel, chapter 1, uh, from verse 9 to verse 11. As I said earlier, we are taking a slight diversion uh, to look at the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, if we are to have a vision of what we are called to do of God in our own situation, we must first of all have a vision of the glory of the Saviour we seek to exalt. The story is told of three men uh, who were building a cathedral when a stranger walked by. And the, the first of these men was moving rocks from one pile to another. And the stranger came up to him and said, what are you doing? And he said, can't you see? I'm carrying rocks. And the stranger asked the second worker, what are you doing? And he said, I'm building a wall. Then a few steps away, he came across the third laborer, and he asked the same question, what are you doing? And the man smiled, I'm building a cathedral to the glory of God. When we have captured the vision of God's greatness, that affects all that we do. It transforms our attitude to the work to which God has called us. And in the Bible, you find that before people were given the specifics of what God had called them to do, they were simply given a vision of the glory, the beauty of God, time and time again. So Moses is going to be foundational in the history of his church. He's going to lead the people from Egypt. But before he does, uh, he has a vision of God at the burning bush. Joshua has a vision of one called the captain of the Lord's host. Isaiah is given a vision of the glory of God in the temple, and there's a deep impression laid upon him that God is a holy God. And you see that throughout his writings, there's constant reference to the Holy One of Israel, never left him. It's interesting as well in John 14, 20, uh, 41, John 12, 41, uh, that we're told that it was the glory of Christ that Isaiah saw that day. Saul of Tarsus, before uh, he's given a ministry, uh, he has a vision of Christ. Uh, he is subdued, and there is a constraining impression laid upon him that God is sovereign. He is the boss, and we have that permeating all of Paul's writings. John, uh, on the Isle of Patmos, before uh, he is given this vision of the victory of the Lord Jesus Christ through the generations. He's given a vision of Jesus in all his glorious beauty and majesty and might. And so, as we also seek uh, under God to fulfill the purposes of God for our generation, it's so important, isn't it, that we uh, go out to serve with a vision of the glory of Jesus. And over the next few weeks, I want us to look at some significant uh, markers in our Lord's life when his glory is revealed. And we're looking this morning at a wonderful occasion when the glory of Jesus is revealed at his baptism. Very simply, we're going to look at uh, the hidden glory of Christ and then his glory revealed as Savior and as God at his baptism. 
So, the glory of the Son of God is a veiled glory, if you like. It's a hidden glory until Jesus comes at the Incarnation and reveals it. It was veiled, and yet it was there all the time. The second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, has been glorious from all eternity. And he's been glorious in the communion that he has had with the Father and the Spirit from all time. And in John's Gospel, when John is is, uh, writing his prologue, he begins with this eternal communion, uh, speaking of the Son of God as the Word of God. The Word, uh, in the beginning, was the Word, and the Word was with God. And many of the commentators point out that that uh, little word that we have translated as with, pros theos, is towards God. The word was, as it were, face to face with God. And so you have this lovely picture of face to face friendship. So John's telling us that God is a fullness, that there is companionship, there is community in God. God is not isolated or lonely but has been perfect, perfect in the, the, the shared fellowship of Father and of Son and of Holy Spirit. And the Son of God has shared that, that communion, that community from all eternity. He's never been lonely. He's never been uh, needy in any sense. And John goes on to speak of the Son or the Word as being involved in creation. All things were made through him. And then being the source of light and of life. But this glory that is in the Son of God uh, was largely hidden. It surfaces occasionally. We have little glimpses of it in the Old Testament as we read. Uh, little glimpses, suggestions, uh, hints where, for example, we have God saying, Let us make man in his image. Uh, We see his glory in some of the appearances of God, or theophanies, where we're led to believe sometimes it's the Son of God, the second person that has appeared before his incarnation. Uh, When the angels appear to Abraham, perhaps this is the Son of God coming. Uh, When Daniel's friends are in the fiery furnace, there's one who walks with them, and it's said of him that he was like a son of the gods. And we saw that when Isaiah sees his vision in the temple, that John identifies this as the glory of the sun. But it's a hidden glory. Isaiah himself says, Truly, you are a God who hides himself, O God of Israel, the Savior. And there's a sense in which the glory is still being hidden when Jesus comes to earth, because he comes uh, not to a royal palace or the capital, but he comes to a stable in Bethlehem. And although there are angels who sing of his glory, they're singing to a congregation of humble shepherds. And Jesus' early life is one of being hidden away. Uh, They have to flee to Egypt from a cruel king. Uh, He spends his uh, young life in Nazareth, an obscure town in the north of which it was said, can anything good come out of Nazareth? And he labors as a carpenter. John 7, 39 tells us that it's only in the cross and resurrection of Jesus that 
His glory is fully revealed. But even before then, there are glimpses given of the glory of Jesus. Times when the, the kind of veil is pulled aside and we see glory. And here is one of these occasions at the baptism of Jesus when we are privileged just to behold the glory of the Son. One of our Reformed theologians, the Charles Hodge, 19th century theologian, writes about the glory of Christ like this, he says. The glory of Christ is the sum of all the divine and human excellence which is centered in his person and makes him the radiant point in the universe. The clearest manifestation of God to his creatures the object of supreme admiration, adoration, and love to all intelligent beings and especially to his saints. To see his glory is to be saved, for we are thereby transformed into his likeness from glory to glory. Mark tells us that in those days Jesus came from uh, Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized of John in the garden and in the Jordan. And straight away there's a pointer to the hiddenness of Jesus. He comes from Nazareth. He comes from the north country. He comes from a, a backwoods town. He's not from the capital. He's not a big city boy. He comes from the place uh, where it was said nothing good comes from Nazareth. He comes there from there and he comes with the crowds. People are coming from uh, Judea and all of Jerusalem. He comes with his glory hidden with the multitudes that are making their way to John. And yet, this is the beginning, the inauguration of his ministry. This is a really important point. This marks out the path that will take Jesus to the cross. His ministry begins at his baptism. Remember when, after Judas had committed suicide and the disciples have to find a replacement for Judas, uh, they need to select someone uh, who had known Jesus from the time of Jesus' baptism until the time he was taken away from us. So his baptism is a marker point. It's the start of Jesus' public ministry. What is it that's revealed at the baptism? Well, first of all, there's a revealing of the work to which Jesus had come uh, to do. And then secondly, there's a revelation of who he is. He's, this, he's, the, he's God, he's divine. Jesus stands amongst us at his baptism. Jesus, stand among us in your risen power. Jesus is standing among us at his baptism. He has come as the saviour of sinners. That is what his baptism reveals to us. It's revealing that he is the saviour of sinners. There's a mass movement at the time of John's baptizing. There's some incredible estimates of how many thousands uh, came to be baptized. But Mark uh, communicates something of that, the extraordinariness of it, uh, when he, he says that uh, all the people of Jerusalem, the whole Judean countryside. Okay, so uh, 
cities and countryside are being evacuated of their populations as people go to John to be baptized for the, as a baptism of repentance for sins. It must have been extraordinary. Imagine it, if you will, in our own situation, make it contemporary and, and think of John not baptizing in the Jordan but the Clyde and Glasgow Monklands being emptied of their populations, people becoming aware that their lives were not right. All kinds of people, all, all shades of sin being exposed, uh, religious sinners, uh, people who occasionally went to church and gave and thought that that was enough and were quite smug in their religion, suddenly uh, having the lid taken off that to realize, no, they're in danger. People would use religion as a cover for their, their bigotry and prejudice, all of a sudden realizing how wrong that was and coming for deliverance. People who had been gossips, people who had envied, people who had been coveting, people who had had more obvious sin, people who had fallen into addiction, people who had lost the way quite openly, people who were wasters, people who were scroungers, people who were living immoral lives and leading other people into immoral lives. Can you imagine Jesus in that crowd? The crowd that he joined that day when he went to the Jordan would be much the same at heart. People who were away from God. What on earth was Jesus doing with them? It is a scandal. And if this had not been inspired by the Holy Spirit, then uh, it would never have been recorded because there would have been the fear of people being misled into thinking that Jesus was needing to repent of his sins. It would have been airbrushed out of the account because it was quite clear to, to the writers of the Gospels that Jesus was absolutely sinless. He always honoured his Father, God. He always lived to please God. He never broke any of the commandments. His father was always first in his thinking. He had no gods before him. Never misused his name. He lived a life of irreproachable integrity. He honored the Sabbath day. He honored his earthly parents. He never harmed. He was never sexually immoral. He never stole, never lied, never coveted. Not only was that outwardly obvious, but it was inwardly true as well. And nobody who comes, nobody who comes to, to the Bible and reads the New Testament with an open mind can fail to come away uh, that there's a record in the Gospel of a man whose integrity, whose moral goodness shines and cuts through all of the, the faddishness that obscures the truth over the generations. He makes an abiding impression. This is the Jesus who is coming with the crowds. Jesus is standing amongst us. He is standing with sinners. He is there in the environment of grimy, ugly, repugnant sin. And this is what he had come to do. He had come 
to bear sin and to take the part of sinners. But we do see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for a little while, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. Matthew tells us John's embarrassed when Jesus comes. He says, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? And Jesus, Matthew tells us, responds, let it be so now, for it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Why was it fitting? Why was it fulfilling all righteousness? Because this, this was an act which is symbolizing what Jesus has come to do. On the cross, he will be taking the part of sinful people. And this is demonstrating, this is a very visual way of showing that Jesus will identify with sinners as he walks down into the waters of baptism along with the pickpockets and prostitutes. He will show that one day what Isaiah said of him, he was numbered with the transgressors, will be true in the cross. What did the cross achieve? What would it achieve? It was what we call today penal substitution. It was penal, it was punishment. Jesus was bearing punishment for something that he had not done because he comes as a substitute. He takes our place. He identifies with the sins of other people to bear them away. And that's being trailed, if you like, in this trailer of the baptism. We're seeing a glimpse into the glory of the cross. Jesus will come as a substitute. Jesus standing amongst us. Jesus goes in, and after John has been willing to baptize him, he comes up out of the water, and there are two remarkable things. There's the descent of the Spirit, and there's the voice of the Father. The descent of the Spirit, I'm sure, was a physical and observable event. John tells us that uh, he only recognized Jesus because he'd been told, he upon whom the Spirit descends, he is the one. And it, it was highly significant what was happening. The Spirit, the Holy Spirit, coming uh, visibly upon Jesus as he came out of the water in the form of a dove. And this was a kind of anointing of Jesus. As Jesus begins his ministry, he is anointed by the Holy Spirit. In the tabernacle, the, the priests began their ministry at, at the age of 30, and Jesus is about 30 at this point. And they were anointed for their work. Uh, prophets and kings were also anointed for the work uh, that they were called to do. And in the Old Testament, uh, those who were called to positions of service were, were not only set apart, but they were empowered by the Spirit to do their work. And so the descent on the Spirit is marking out Jesus as the one who is authorized and is empowered to do the work of being the Savior of sinners. But secondly, he is not only filled with the Spirit without measure, he is the giver of the Spirit. That's why it's so significant what John says before the baptism, that one comes after me more powerful than I, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, 
but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. He's the baptizer. Jesus. Jesus is the baptizer with the Holy Spirit. He is the giver. He is the obtainer of the Spirit. When he is ascended, and we'll think, God willing, on the ascension, and how Jesus obtains the, the Holy Spirit for his people. He will give the Spirit, and not just to prophets, priests, and kings, but to all the people of God. And there's no other path to having the Holy Spirit than through Jesus. He is the Spirit giver. And to have Jesus is to have the Spirit. If you belong to Christ because you have faith in him, you have the Holy Spirit. And thirdly, that Spirit that all Christians receive when we trust Jesus like little children and believe into Jesus and receive the Spirit, there's a wonderful thing in our lives. It brings a new creation, a transformation. There are two events that are symbolized by the coming of the Spirit as a dove. Uh, first of all, it's a reminder of the creation itself. Uh, in Genesis 1 and verse 2, we're told, Now the earth was formless and empty, darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. So we have the, the Spirit of God bird-like, hovering over the, the, the primordial chaos of creation. And then when the world is destroyed in the flood, at Noah's time, what bird is it that's sent out of the ark? It's a dove that gives the sign that the waters have now receded and that there is a new creation. So the, the visible uh, symbol of the dove at Jesus' baptism is a sign that the spirit that he will give is the spirit who brings about a new creation. We don't need just to be improved upon. We don't need to be just a little bit better. We need to be made new. If anyone is in Christ, Paul says, he is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. By the creative power of God, we are made new. New desires. We want to please God. New affections. We know what it is to be thrilled in the presence of God, to behold the beauty of Christ and to long for him. New affection that only the Spirit of God comes. And then, thirdly, Jesus' glory isn't revealed only by showing what he's come to do. It's shown by God the Father declaring who he is. His person. The voice of the Father speaks. Now, it's great, isn't it? The three persons of the Trinity here. The, the Son at his baptism, the Father speaking, the Holy Spirit descending. It's a momentous event, a glorious event, his baptism. Notice that the Father says, You are my Son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. And again, uh, there are echoes of the Old Testament. Now, you know, to, to modern uh, modern congregations, we think, oh, it's a bit involved, all these Old Testament references. And we forget often when we're reading the New Testament that the first hearers were Jews who were steeped in their scriptures, who would have the, the scriptures memorized in, in ways that would make us blush. 
And so these things are not as obscure or remote as they may appear to us. They were there on the surface to those uh, who had ears to hear and eyes to see. And there's an echo of Psalm 2. You are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance. What's the father doing here? He's, he's affirming Jesus as his son. He's identifying the son, singling it out as the son of God. Those of you who are parents, you know what it's like to go into a, a busy playground or a classroom where you're going to pick up your child and how proud you are to say, he's my son. She's my girl, my daughter. We identify them as ours. And here the father is doing this in this lovely domestic way. He is saying, you're my son. Uh, it's almost as though the father is saying, for the avoidance of doubt, this is the son of God. It may appear that he is simply one amongst many sinners coming for a baptism of, re of repentance. Be in no doubt, this is my son, my own son. Son's eternal love-affirmed deity is now being affirmed in time by the Father. He's the one spoken of in the psalm, and it's the Father's pleasure to give him the nations. That takes place when, when the Son, through his gospel, brings in the peoples of the world into the people of the King. It also is affirming Jesus not only as divine, as the Son of God, but it's also affirming Jesus for being the servant who's willing to do the, the work of the Messiah. Because the second part of the statement is echoing another part of the Old Testament, Isaiah 42. Uh, 42, 1 says, Here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. So, back in Isaiah 42, 1, there's the, the father delighting in the servant who's clearly the Messiah. So we're being, we're being reminded now that not only is this God, but he's the servant. He's the servant king who has come to do the father's will. And of course, it goes on beautifully to, to say what that servanthood involves. I will put my spirit on him and he will bring justice to the nations. He will not shout or cry out or raise his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smouldering wick he will not snuff out. In faithfulness he will bring forth justice. He will not falter or be discouraged until he establishes justice on earth. In his teaching, the islands will place their hope. What a beautiful little word portrait of the servant in all his glorious gentleness and all his bright glory as the conquering one. The servant and the father is delighted in him. Friends, what a glorious glimpse, isn't it, into Jesus, into his person, into his work. He knows the affirming love of God the Father, the empowering presence of God the Spirit at this very time when he needs it most, when he is stepping out 
of the shadows to embark on the mission of salvation. Lovely picture, an insight into the Trinity, a community of love, affirming love. This is our glorious Savior. This is Jesus, our servant King. And a question, again, always comes to us, have you seen his glory? To see his glory is to be a Christian, to trust in him. And that's the first thing, the first thing. Have you put your faith in him? If you haven't, then you need to more than anything else. And putting your faith in Jesus places you into him. It's always literally to have faith into Jesus. And that places us in the person of the one who is loved of God. Loved of God. It means that God's attitude towards you, if you're a Christian, is the attitude that God proclaimed towards the Son at his baptism. This is my Son whom I love, whom I am well pleased. That's why when Paul can speak of the, the, the privileges of being uh, adopted into his family, of being chosen of God, uh, he can say that we've been blessed in his beloved Beautiful name, isn't it, for Jesus, the Beloved. But we've been placed into the Beloved so that the most fundamental truth about you, the defining characteristic of who you are if you are a Christian, is that you are in the Beloved, in the Beloved. Can you take that in? Can you see how that changes everything? Can you see how that gives you security? Because in your years of insecurity, you sought it by the things that you did, by accomplishments, by pleasing people, and by avoiding criticism. And now nothing else matters but that God loves you and is pleased with you. No criticism by anybody else can take that away. Put it another way, our security as Christians, our assurance of being right with God, doesn't depend any longer on our performance. It depends now on our position in Christ, in the beloved, blessed in the beloved. That's what this is about. It's pointing to the glory of Jesus and the privilege of being placed into him by faith. What impregnable security. No one can rob us of that if we are in Christ. May God fortify you today and always with that thought that faith has placed you into the blood. And God says of you, as he says of Christ, you're my child. And with you, because of Jesus, I am well pleased. May God bless to us the preaching of his holy word.